Our sermon today, our scripture text, comes from 2 Samuel, preaching from chapter 4 of 2 Samuel. This is God's word. Please listen. When Saul's son heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost heart, and all Israel was troubled. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of troops. The name of one was Baana, and the name of the other Rechab, the sons of Rimmon the Beerothite, the children of Benjamin, for Beeroth was part of Benjamin, because the Beerothites fled to, uh, fled to Gatain and have been sojourners there until this day. Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son who was lame in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse, nurse took him and, up and fled. And it happened, as she made haste to flee, that he fell and became lame. His name was Mephibosheth. Then the sons of Rimmon, the Beerothite, Rechab and Baana, set out and came about the heat of the day to the house of Ishbosheth, who was lying on his bed at noon. And they came there all the way into the house as though to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Baana, his brother, escaped. For when they came into the house, he was lying on his bed in his bedroom. Then they struck him and killed him, beheaded him, and took his head, and were all night escaping through the plain. And they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron, and said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. And the Lord has avenged my lord the king this day of Saul and his descendants. But David answered Rechab and Vana, his brother, sons of Rimmon the Beerothite, and said to them, As the Lord lives, who has, re- who has redeemed my life from all adversity, when someone told me, saying, Look, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought good news, I arrested him and had him executed at Ziklag. The one who thought I would give him a reward for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous person in his own house on his bed. Therefore shall I not now require his blood at your hand and remove you from the earth. So David commanded his young men and they executed them, cut off their hands and feet and hanged them by the pool in Hebron. They took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner, Hebron. They've seen that I've titled this sermon Waiting Upon the Lord. There's a reason for that that will become apparent. Let me observe that waiting is very difficult, isn't it? God had promised that David would be king, and having promised, God was the one who was going to keep his word. But David waited many years for this promise to be, uh, to be fulfilled. He waited while Saul reigned as king and then waited now another seven years of the civil war. And 
he was not yet king of all Israel, even though the Lord had promised. That promise did sustain David through this period, and the truth of God's sovereign promises helps us to understand these chapters. It also helps us to understand the difficulties that we go through in this life, even difficulties that come from the hands of sinful people that sin against us. They demonstrate that God always accomplishes his purposes, even in the midst of the complexity of sinful human decisions. And seeing that God is sovereign means that he rules over all things. And seeing that, it teaches us to wait upon the Lord by shaping our actions around the trust that you have in him. That's where David's trust informs him to wait upon the Lord. I'll be defining uh, defining that later, but I want you to see how he waited first of all knowing that God was sovereign over all of these things that were happening. We'll begin with by thinking of God's sovereignty on display. This comes not just in this latest chapter 4, but it reaches really back to the first of this book and really all of what First and Second Samuel is about. And for that matter, it reaches throughout all of history and all of our lives. God is sovereign over all things. So let's see how this account shows that. So for many years, David waited on the Lord while Saul reigned. It's going back to 1 Samuel. But in God's time, Saul died in battle. The Lord was at work. David then ascended to the throne of Judah, was sworn in there, we might say, and yet faced at least seven more years of civil war that divided the nation of Israel. The one tribe that followed him and the other 11 that were aligned with Ishbosheth and Abner. They'd rebelled against God and against David. But in God's time, Abner died too. In Abner's case, he, was, he, he died because Joab sinned when he murdered Abner. But at the same time, God had a sovereign purpose that was at work in the midst of this. By the hands of a sinful man, God's judgment fell on Abner. Much the same could be said of Ishbosheth. Chapter 3 concentrated on Abner, but Ishbosheth was participating in this rebellion. He participated even though he seemed to be Abner's puppet. And in his participation, we can see that his rebellion was a sin against the Lord. And yet, uh, he. Uh, He didn't deserve to die in the way he did die. Sinful men came and killed Ishbosheth. They murdered him. And yet, once more, God was removing obstacles to David's reign. 
By the hands of sinful men, God's judgment fell on Ishbosheth. And even the short interjection here in verse 4 that tells us about a character that we're going to learn more about in the, in the next chapters. It's about Mephibosheth. That's the grandson of Saul, the son of David's close friend, Jonathan. Jonathan, who is in line to be the next hereditary king, which means that his son was also in that natural line of inheriting the throne or inheriting the crown. Now, if you follow the news in Great Britain, you know that there is a new king in Britain recently, and that and you, you start to track, well, who's next in line to be the king? And, and maybe you have, uh, have followed that. Well, Mephibosheth could be considered in that line in Israel. But by a childhood accident, Mephibosheth was severely crippled. An accident that weakened him physically and in a sense, weakened his opportunity and ability to serve. Another sovereign act of God, clearing the way, so to speak, for David to serve as king, even as he had promised. Point being is that these chapters present a powerful lesson of God's providence in life. God's providence. Now, Mr. Spittler's class has been studying the catechism, and so his students might recognize the answer to this question. What is God's providence? Providence is God's works. God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all of their actions. In other words, God is sovereignly ruling over everything that happens. And there is a deep mystery to this because it's hard to wrap our minds around the fact that the Lord God even rules over the actions of sinful men and women. He does. Otherwise, he would not be God. He sovereignly rules governing and directing all of the history of the universe, all the creatures and all of their actions, even those who are sinful. And yet mysteriously, without being the author or causer of sin himself. This comes from the scripture. We know from James chapter 1 that God is perfectly righteous and he cannot sin. And he doesn't prompt or lead anyone to sin. And then you couple that with many different verses, but I'll just cite Ephesians chapter 1, 11, that says that everything happens according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Like I said, how do we wrap our brains around this? Even the... Authors of scripture like, like Paul are, is, 
in a sense, confounded by this. We, we are brought to the end of words, and so Paul says, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. So when I say that God's sovereign purpose was at work, I phrased it very carefully. I've said, and I'll say throughout this sermon, by the hands of sinful men, God's judgment fell. And I'm in good company in saying that way because this is how Peter describes the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. When he preached on the day of Pentecost, he said that, uh, that he is there to proclaim the life and the work and the redemption of Jesus Christ who was delivered up by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. There's the sovereignty of God. But Peter doesn't stop there. He goes on and says, and was taken and crucified by the hands of sinful men. God sovereignly sent Jesus Christ, his own son, who is without sin, to die on the cross for us, to be our redeemer. And it was carried out and condemned as a sinful act. How do we bring those two together? Oh, the depths of the mystery of God's judgments. David's life and David's response to all of these things put God's sovereignty on display. So let's look a little more closely at Ishbosheth's death. For Ishbosheth died at the hands of sinful men. Let me just walk through the text here briefly to, uh, to explain a little bit more about what's happening here. Ishbosheth heard that Abner was dead, and the text says he shrunk away in fear, uh, that he lost heart. Literally, it says that his hands were limp. And, and you might, have you ever been so afraid that you, you begin to tremble? Well, this was Ishbosheth's response to Abner's death. And you might understand why that would be, because in the ancient culture, what would happen when one king defeated another king? That king would die. Not only that king, but all of his household and all of those who trusted in him and all of those who served in his army. We could liken it a little bit to when a new administration is elected in the United States. That administration comes in and cleans house. Those that aren't party to to the elected official, are, uh, are let go. They're fired. And new officials are, uh, are installed by the one who is elected. It's much more violent in the ancient world. And Ishbosheth knew that. Abner was now dead. Would he be next be killed? And the text says that even all of Israel was troubled by this. Remember, I, I described last week <clears throat> what these other tribes might see happening. 
They might think that David was now in his ascendancy of power was going to tighten his fist against all of those who had rebelled against him. He killed Abner, he'll kill Ishbosheth, he's going to clean house. So all Israel was troubled. But God was at work in this. These were the hands of sinful men. The text tells us about that. Two commanders of Ishbosheth, two brothers, Bana and Rechab, sons of Remen, went and murdered Ishbosheth. Under false pretenses, they went to his house. They entered his home in the cool, or excuse me, in the heat of the day while he might be taking a siesta or resting. They went into his bedroom while he slept or relaxed on his own bed. They stabbed him and killed him, cut off his head. Now, Ishbosheth had elevated himself against the Lord's anointed. Yes, God judged Ishbosheth for his rebellion and the shameful trouble that he had brought on David and all of Israel. And yes, God used the hands of sinful men to judge Ishbosheth. But what these sons of Rimmon did was indeed wicked. Was not an act of war. Think back to what Joab did. Joab did not act in warfare. He took matters into his own hands and killed Abner. These men did the very same thing. It was cold-blooded murder. It had a motive to it. It doesn't uh, speak exactly to it, but is alluded by what David describes in his response. Because he remembers a man earlier who had come to, da- come to him and said, your enemy is dead. And he thought to get a reward. And that's what David says. And it's pretty clear that these men were thinking, ah, There's a reward to have here. David is in the ascendancy, and if we take out Ishbosheth, we will be honored by David. Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. And the Lord has avenged my Lord, the king, this day of Saul and his descendants. Now, they acknowledged the Lord's judgments, but they were putting themselves forward as David's redeemer. So, how did David respond? And here I'll remind you that uh, of the title I've given to this sermon. You might be surprised by my answer. How did David respond? He waited on the Lord. But if you read these next verses, it doesn't look like he's waiting in the way that we often call it. When, uh, when I'm waiting for the microwave to finish, I'm not doing anything. I'm just, uh, I'm just sitting there waiting for my instant gratification to come out and the popcorn to be done or whatever it is that I'm heating. But David waited on the Lord. Now, he definitely took actions 
Look at what he did. He condemned Bana and Rechab for murdering Ishbosheth. He not only condemned them like he had condemned Joab, but he, as king and judge, exercised that authority that he had. And he pronounced judgment on these two sons of Remen. And he recounts a similar circumstance where that man had come and claimed to have killed Saul and was seeking a, a reward. But David rewarded him with justice, and in the same way he exercises and rewarded these two murderers with the same reward. And he made their punishment public. They were executed for the sin of murder. And as one commentator says, he had cut off the hands with which they had committed murder and the feet with which they had run for the reward. And they had hanged these on the tree for a spectacle and warning that others might be deterred from continuing similar crimes. Finally, he gave Ishbosheth an honored burial, laid to rest in the tomb of Abner. David certainly acted here, didn't he? So why, why would I say he waited on the Lord? Well, it's because waiting on the Lord doesn't mean complete inactivity. It means relying on God in your life. It means trusting in his timing. It means shaping your actions around the promises of God, around the trust that you have in those promises, and around what God has said. That has active sense of waiting to it. This is what sustained David through all of these years, is it not? See, even as he waited while Saul was hunting him, he was active then, was he not? He was putting to death all of the sins of the heart in his own self so that he would not take matters into his own hands. And he was quelling that among his own, his own followers so that they would not take up the sword against King Saul. He was actively, actively submitting to the king that God had given. And he was actively building up his own trust and hope in the promises of God, a promise that said, David, you are my king. And so, with dogged determination, David was holding on to that promise of God. And he was pursuing that promise. He was pursuing the peace of all of Israel. It's the point I made last week about Joab. Think again about the troubling of all of Israel at the death of Abner. They might think again that here's, here's David ascending and going to wage his vengeance on them, but David would not take vengeance himself. So his judgment on the sons of Rimmon 
proved to the tribes of Israel that David wanted peace. The way he dealt with Ishbosheth's head, speaking of him as a righteous man, not, not that he hadn't rebelled, but that he did not deserve this death. The way he honored uh, uh, Ishbosheth again argued that he was pursuing peace as a righteous king. See that being sustained by the promises of God, waiting on him, fashioning his actions and his hope around the word of God. This is where the application is, is so important for us today. We are not kings, but waiting is hard, isn't it? And waiting is, is made harder by the sins of our own hearts and the sins of those around us. We live in, a, in this complex spaghetti mishmash of the actions of sinful people, including our own. But God is sovereign. And in his providence, the Lord rules over that complex spaghetti of all of the things that are happening. And it is God's purpose to rule over all things, to bring about his appointed end. Sometimes he reveals what those are, like he did for David. You will be king. And that sustained David on the road to that. The ends that God has for us day by day uh, may not be as clearly revealed. There are things that we know. We know that God, by his grace, claims us to be his children. And part of that claiming to be his children is that we would put to death old sins and to live as a child of God. God says that he will sustain us in that. He has cleansed us by his sovereign love and that he sustains us in the process of sanctification so that we are growing in grace. Practically, that means that Waiting on the Lord instructs us to nurture that waiting, that active waiting, through the means of grace that God has given. I think somehow my notes got siphoned over to Dave in his class today, so if you want to go and listen a little more to his conclusion about the means of grace, it is, it is really good. I'm going to steal a little bit of that. Waiting on the Lord is intimately tied to those means of grace. Actively tied to those means of grace. It means to to seek out God in every aspect of life. And to seek out to actively do his will while trusting in his promises. So how do you know what those promises are? How do you know what his will is? Well, you need to be reading God's word. You need to be listening to it. 
You need to be thinking about it. You need to be memorizing it. These are all ways that God brings to bear his will and his character in your life. And as you wait on him by reading, you will be in step with God. And through prayer, through prayer, you come to nurture that relationship with Christ. You speak to your Savior, and you listen to him, and you you, you ask God for direction, and he, and he answers. Through prayer, you, you seek out his will, and you deepen your dependence on him. And through worship, you join with brothers and sisters to humble yourself. Rather than exalting yourself, worship is about humbling yourself before Almighty God, acknowledging that Jesus alone is your Savior, not you, Jesus is your Savior. And in dependence on the Holy Spirit, you humble yourself and you ask him to be glorified in your life, even in the midst of that conflict, even in the midst of that terrible complex of sin rising up in you and all around you. God uses the means of grace to nurture you, to wait upon him. The other means of grace that I can't help but tie in today are the sacraments. I want you to see that we observe a, a similar trust, resting and waiting on the grace of God that is not passive, it is active. We are pursuing these things by God's grace. And so, in explaining the sacrament of baptism, I say that it is God's initiative to save sinners. And the sacrament of baptism reminds us of that. And we wait on him and on the promises of God for ourselves, that we indeed would be cleansed, and our children, because God has promised to be a God to us and to our children after us. And so we wait on that promise of God of God and we and we we shape our parenting around our belief in those promises. And so we train and disciple and discipline our children, teaching them of their need of a savior Jesus Christ and to value the church that they might become members in good time. We wait upon the Lord we wait upon the Lord in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. You are not going to grasp the forgiveness of your sins by taking and eating and taking and drinking today. That comes from God. And our taking and partaking of these things are signs and symbols of our participating in the work of Jesus Christ by faith, by receiving and resting in the one whose body was broken, whose blood was poured out for us. Those are particular and practical ways that you can nurture your faith, nurture that sense of waiting upon the Lord. That will see you in good stead 
when you find yourself in David's shoes, waiting years for the promise of God, wondering what is it that the Lord has in mind by the trial that you're going through right now. You'll be stood in good, you'll be in good standing if you nurture that posture, waiting on the Lord, shaping, shaping your actions on the trust that you have in a sovereign God and the word that he has given to you. May God equip each one of you in this way. Amen. Let's pray. God, much like David himself said, be still, therefore, before the Lord and wait patiently for him. God, thank you that we can look to one who learned this through a school of hardship. Pray that we would be learning this too. Pray that we would wait patiently for the Lord, casting all of our cares upon you, nurturing our understanding of who you are and what you are about in the world, earnestly seeking that out through reading and prayer, through the fellowship of the saints and through the sacraments. For Lord, we depend upon you for everything that we have and all that we do. And as we wait, I pray that we would shape our actions around that trust that we have in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It was David himself in Psalm 37 who said, Wait therefore on the Lord. And that's what we're going to sing as we move from the preached words to the word demonstrated in the sacrament. We're going to profess our waiting upon the Lord. We're going to profess our faith as we sing this. And with a, with a hearty faith, I, I pray that you will lift up your voice to sing this. Psalm 37, Selection A. We stand to sing.